This is the process.ink. I'm Tom Benedek. This is the process. And I'm here in beautiful Santa Monica, California with Peter Horton, actor, director, producer. And we're in his office on Euclid in one of the production hives of, uh, of show business today. Uh, welcome, Peter. It's Thanks. great to have you with me. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you, Tom. Great to be here. So you've been uh, you've been active in the you came out here as an actor or you came out here to study to L.A. originally? I well, I, I kind of fell into this career, actually uh, stumbled into it. I, I had I didn't have a um, sort of an innate intention when I first started. I was living in Santa Barbara. I got a degree in composition. I was a musician first and had just written a score to a small film actually up there. And I had a couple of friends who were actors who were coming to town to maybe live in Santa Barbara, and there was a repertory company opening up. And one of them decided not to, not to show up, and I needed money. And I thought, maybe the repertory company would need a piano player. So, so I went and I auditioned. I went to the audition as a piano player, and they kind of looked at me oddly, like, why are you here? But they needed students, so they said, why don't you take acting classes? And I thought that would be good for me. You know, and I just in life. Yeah, it's always good. Right? Yeah, I did that. So I took some classes that led to a play, that led to an agent, and next thing I knew I was acting in television primarily, a little bit of film. And you were on 30-something for a long time. Well, that was you well before a big television that. star 30-something. Right? Well, by the time 30-something came along, I had stopped acting, because I, I really very quickly realized that what I wanted to do was be a director. I just found myself constantly gravitating towards the camera and towards directors and going into editing rooms with them. And, and so by the time 37 came along, I decided to stop acting and just focus on directing. I had done a, a short or a couple of shorts with my friends and I was just trying to get going. And, but I was friends with the creators of 30-something. We had just been, we were in the same neighborhood together and we would become friends. And they, and uh, yeah, Ed Zwick and Marshall Herskovitz, yeah. And they had come to me and said, you know, we're doing a pilot. Do you want to do this pilot? And I, and I had said, well, uh, no, <laughs> I'm not acting anymore, but thanks. And then they said, well, just read it. And I, so I read it and I said, best pilot I've ever read, but I'm not acting. And they said, well, come read with the people we're thinking of, just see how it feels. And one thing led to the other until Ed finally pulled me aside and said, this is never going to go. If it goes, you can direct one of the first six. And if for some reason it actually goes, goes, we'll kill you off after four years. And so that was, that's how it all happened. They didn't kill you off, but they demolished your marriage, right? Is it well, and they killed me too. I died at the end of 37. I, I, I rode off on a bicycle and the next thing you know, I was dead. So it, okay, it, so they uh, kept their word. They kept their word. Were you glad that they did that? About that? By then, were you happy to say goodbye or what was that like? You know, it was, it was a really interesting experience because we all, on that episode that I died, which was unbeknownst to us was the last year of 30-something anyway, but we all, the cast all got together to watch it at Melanie Mehron's house, um, who was one of the actresses in it. And, you know, suddenly I'm thinking to myself, my God, I'm off this hit show. <laughs> what have I done? And, and, and the next thing I knew, the show, they decided to stop it anyway, so it ended up being a... a so you a, got a, closure a, and closure. I got closure and closure. I got closure on and my closure. And your wife on the show was... Patricia Callenberg, yeah. She was great. She was great. Okay, and then you, you, know, you also, you ended up, you did, you've done a lot of television, you produced and directed a lot of television, right. and you were on uh, Grey's Anatomy for a very long time. Yeah, I directed the pilot to Grey's Anatomy and then produced the series for the first three years, which was a fabulous ride. I really enjoyed that a lot. And, and then it was time to, again, branch out. And since then, I've done a lot more writing, a lot more creating of shows, which has really been my goal all along, is to be a, directing, a writing, directing producer. And so what are you working on right now? Uh, well, last year I created and co-wrote a thing called American Odyssey that was on NBC and, and on Netflix. And so now I'm writing a, a pilot for Cinemax, going out with another project that's based on a series of books that my agent Peter Benedict found. It's a fabulous series called Chinaman's Chance. And then just sort of developing other things, you know, that are a little more 
further down the horizon. And, and, and American Odyssey, you co-wrote that. How, what was the, what was that about? What yeah, it was. It started with someone coming to us and saying, uh, "It was actually a British company, uh, Simon Maxwell, a guy from England, with a company called Red Arrow that." came to me and, and my writing partners at the time and said, maybe we should do, maybe we should do a modern take on the Odyssey. And we thought, that's weird. And so we sat down, we started sort of kicking around what that would look like. And the, my writing partners at the time were the two of the people who ran the show Heroes for Tim Kring. And so they were used to this sort of multi-storied kind of storytelling. And so we just sat down, we started thinking about how you could tell the tale of, the emotional tale. Well, the emotional cornerstone of the Odyssey is a guy trying to find his way home. That's, that's a heart-tugging sort of underlying theme for the piece. And we thought, that's great, that's strong. And so we came up with this character who was, you know, basically marooned out in Afghanistan, or out in the middle, the middle East, Northern Africa trying to find her way home and just built stories around that and that became this thing that was on NBC called American Odyssey. And how did that, that you, you, you wrote episodes with those guys or you directed the pilot or what was the... It was, it was a huge project. We, we, it, was, it ended up being a, a sort of three stories in, were you know, embodied in the overall piece and so each of us took a story and wrote that and then we would sort of put them together and and sort of rewrite each other and, and work work that way. And it ended up, took place in Mali and in New York. And so we ended up wow. shooting in Morocco and New York with two simultaneous crews going, two casts, you wow. know, casting directors all over the world, and just sort of spent the year flying <laughs> back and forth from continent to continent. And then the show was on, aired on NBC yeah. for in the fall? Of it was last, uh, a year ago last spring. It was uh, on for 13 episodes. And, and was it always just 13, it was created as a 13 episode show or was it supposed to be an ongoing show or? Well, you know, it, initially it was going to be a limited series, but then when we started to, to make it, NBC was thinking it might be, might be perennial, uh, which would have been great, but then it just didn't quite get the numbers it needed to sustain itself on a network television. Show would have done fine on cable, and it's on um, Netflix. Now? It's on Netflix now, or iTunes, or any okay. of those places. American Odyssey, yeah. and and was that hard when they when you had to sort of change, try to sort of in, did you have to re envision some things or retool a little bit so it could be a show that could continue or? Well, it it's you know we had created these. It was it was based on a on a, the the question of. Where does power reside in this day and age? Is it still democratically distributed, um, even in a country as democratic and evolved as the United States is in that, in that way? Does it still reside with the people, or yeah. has it been transferred to international corporations? Has it been you know transferred to individuals with money? It's like where is the power and? That theme was something that we could have riffed on for years. Going from the, the Odyssey, the classic, mm. to that theme, when did you find that? And how much mm. did that inform everything from what point? It's really, it's amazing. Well, you know, we, we were, right when we started working on it was, was, you know, it took us, it was a long process to get it up and running. It was way back when, when you know, the 99% sort of demonstrations and 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 sit-ins were all happening mm -hmm. you know with the Occupy Wall Street yeah. and the whole Occupy movement yeah. was taking place and so you know that theme was very much in the headlines very much in our minds and also something that's been a you know clearly a an evolving issue you know a, a flammable issue yeah. of of income gap, yeah. you know, uh, for quite some time, and so it was natural to sort of go, okay, if we have the, if we have these characters that we're trying to to animate, you know, what are the themes we want to deal with? And that's been one that was not only in the zeitgeist and and, and the headlines, also something that's been something we, you know, the three of us at all had quite a quite a uh, 
a concern about for quite some time. And so, when when you and did you when you were created, did you create a Bible for the show for C, for NBC to pitch it to them, or did you how? What, what did you put together to get it to that next place where you were in? Well, the journey of getting this thing on the air was, was interesting. It was, it was unique to my experience anyway. We, we, we came up with this idea off-season, meaning off-network season. There is no season when it comes to cable, as you know. But we, we came up with it off-season for a network, and so we brought it into Universal Television, the studio, and said, we have this idea, we want to do it. And they liked it enough that they paid for us to write a script, which is unusual. And what you brought to them was the Odyssey. Just, here's an idea, here, here, you know, we want to do a, a remake of the Odyssey, modern day version, here are the characters, here are the basic storylines that we're thinking about for all three characters. And, and they liked it enough that they said, okay, well, you know, we can't, we can't go sell it at, at, a, at a network at this point. But we think NBC, the network, would like it. They, in fact, I think they even had talked to them about it and they expressed some interest. So based on all of that, they paid for us to write a script. And that was who, that, what was that company that paid for the script? Universal, Universal, Universal Television. Oh, so Universal Television didn't try to get any funding from the network nope. and they just home house financed it. They did, they, they financed it, which is unusual. And did you, did you have a deal there? Did the, the heroes yes. gentlemen have a deal there? Yeah, it was Adam Armas and Kay Foster were the people who were, I was writing with. We all had deals at NBC Universal, and so it didn't cost them anything, <laughs> really. They could charge it off on our deals. But we went ahead and we wrote a pilot script, just trying to write a pilot script, you know, and everyone... You think about, like... Episode two and three, not yet. or just like you know, what would be some? You didn't, you just didn't bother with any of that. Not yet. Okay. Initially, we just wanted to try and get a really good pilot script that that would suggest story going forward. You know, with a, ha a cliffhanger at the end and uh -huh. and stuff like that. And we wrote that and got a really strong response from both the studio and the network. So much so that Bob Greenblatt, who was the head of the network, said, you know, I definitely want to make this. And we're like, great. So we're gearing up to make this pilot. And he calls up and he goes, you know what? We're trying this other model where you write scripts first. It's, a, it's like you go straight to series. We want to do that. And we're like, okay. <laughs> what does that mean? And so we wrote another, I think, two or three scripts. We even hired another writer to help. And so we had this little room. We wrote those scripts. Love these, love these. We're not sure if we're going to make it. Want to think about it, and this went on for a year. Then finally, you know, I took him to lunch and said, you know, I got to make this. You got to, you got to give this. This is amazing. Let's do it as a limited series. He goes, you you do it as a limited series. Yeah, we do it as a limited series. And it was like, so the lunch was like something that you just spontaneous. How did was that sort of like do or die? Um, long conversations about how to get this thing moving somehow, or was it like a social lunch where you just kind of brought it up? I, I'm, I, I, get, I get like a dog with a bone for these things sometimes. And I, and I just, this was more like frustrated. You know, I was like, I want to make this show. And it's like, I'm going to take him to lunch. It was just more impulsive. And I just took him to lunch. And I just sat down with him and said, look, I know you, because I'd worked with him for years. And I said, you, you know, you want to be successful commercially, but you also want to take big swings. And I had done, five pilots for him, and all five had gotten on the air uh, between Fox, when he used to be the head of Fox television. What were those five pilots? It was Class of 96 was the first one. Then I did, I had done a, created a, a pilot with Josh Brand called Reconstruction, which we did, we shot the pilot. It didn't go to series, that was a Civil War project. A, a Civil War project. It was one of my favorite things I've ever done. And it, did that, that just went to pilot? It just went to pilot. They didn't pick it up? It's it didn't pick it up. It's a network show. I mean, now maybe better, more possible than... Maybe. I mean, he, it came really close. It was between us and, what was that show he put on? Oh, God, it was a fantasy show he put on Friday nights. I can't remember now. And... Then I did uh, Deception for him. He put on the air. I did uh, Ironside, which he put on the air. And then this would have been the fifth one. So I'd done four pilots and all four had oh. gone on the air and this would, have, this would have been the fifth one. And so I said, 
I know you like to take big swings as well as you want to be successful. And I want, I've done a bunch of years now that are, you know, good programmers like Ironside and Deception. I want to do a big Deception swing. Deception ran for, for a couple of years. I think it ran for one full season. And I said, now I want to do a big swing and this is the big swing I want to do. And he, and, and he kind of looked at me and he was like, would you think of it as a, as a limited series? And I said, sure, we'll do it as a limited series. So then, it's a long story, I know, but it's a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then he went and he, he showed it, exposed it to a European company that loved it and wanted to do the international. They wanted to take international and run with it. And they would put money into it and they would do it. So he said, great, let's do it. Let's do a limited series with this company and we'll go. Well, suddenly his, his international company, NBC Universal, internationally said, wait a minute, we need stuff from you. We like this, we want it. So suddenly there was like this bidding war from international buyers oh, for this piece. And suddenly we were going, you know, okay. And, and he came back to us and said, write, I, want, I want you to write five more scripts. So we're writing scripts while we're preparing for the pilot. He, and and, and it, just, it just became this, eventually what happened is we had to make a pilot <laughs> like everyone else. But we had like seven backup scripts already done by the time we were done with the pilot. So that European model is something that there's more and more of that in yeah. American television, in the network, in the network realm, in the cable realm in the United States. That's something that's yeah. Europe has become very viable and a, and a major player in in the financing of of series, American series television. Um, I've now shot two things overseas. You know, this and a, a thing called the Philanthropist for NBC years ago. It was a series I shot in South Africa and Prague. So that's coming, becoming much, much more of a viable model where, you know. And when, when you think of things, I mean, in terms of like network television today and right. how you think of it and how you think of what they want and what they want and what they say they want and cable, do you sort of divide sort of like ideas into categories, outlet categories? When you're you know, now I do. Uh, I kind of learned that the hard way both with Reconstruction and American Odyssey. Those were both cable ideas, they just were. And I thought, and so did Bob Greenblatt, thought we could make those work on network television, and I, I don't think you can. You know, the financial metric of a network is a very, very industrial age model. It's appointment viewing to a large degree. I mean, now there's plus three or plus seven, but. But basically what they're looking for is people to show up on the night that you air it, because that's where they get their money. Yeah. That no longer is the way that we watch television. And so there's, very, there's a smaller and smaller window or, or category of shows that can fulfill that model. Mm -hmm. So creatively, they're having their, their, you know, their options are getting smaller and smaller of what will work with that model. And so, because what works in cable and really what works in this modern age is word of mouth. You know, we, don't, we no longer are really affected by marketing campaigns the yeah. way we used to be. You've got to hear it from a friend. You've got to see it on Twitter or Snapchat or one of those. People have to be talking about a show. And it has, therefore, it has to be on the air for a period of time to be discovered. And net, the network metric doesn't really allow for that. So, you know, Breaking Bad, you can, you can go through, you know, the list of cable hits that took time to build, you know. Um, but the network, somebody told me that the network, the networks are getting more, you know, they're, they're very successful. I mean, they're, they got more money from the upfronts this year than they've gotten in a long time. And so there's this demand. And so what are the shows that they are trying, you know, they sort of given up, they, they've given up on the idea that, well, we're going to be as cool as cable and we're just going to be network and do what we do. Then what is, what are those shows, how do you see those shows? Yeah, it's, it's, it's harder and harder to figure out what that is. I mean, the, the primary way that networks are so successful, in my opinion, is, is their live events, their sporting events, their political events, you know, their live shows, yeah. you know, those are, those are what really, you know, allow them to thrive because yeah. they have a huge audience for that. And, and advertisers have realized after they've spent you know, quite a while now trying to monetize cable and monetize the internet that there's still their biggest bang for their buck is still network. 
So they've come back to them for those reasons. Mm -hmm. But trying to figure out how that translates to a dramatic fictionalized show is harder and harder. You know, you, you have big, broad soap operas that can, that, like Empire, that seem to be working. Yeah. Um, Shonda, I mean, you, you were Shonda, with, you were with yeah. Shonda at the beginning of Shondaland, yeah. so yeah. that must have been, you know, and, and you didn't like go off and start your own, you know, Horton Land. <laughs> you just stuck with it. And then she, Shonda's off. got, she's one of a kind. I mean, she's got, she's got this ability to, to tap into, you know, a broad audience like this through, through a soapy genre. Yeah. I mean, Grey's Anatomy was a quality soap. And at the same time, make them kind of cool and kind of good. You yeah. know, she's still trying to get, I think, back to, you know, our first year or two of Grey's Anatomy, we were getting, you know, awards left and right. You know, um, it's harder to do that in the network now. Yeah. Uh, because the, the shows you're competing with have so much more creative freedom, so much more, um, not only from, from the hierarchies you're working for, but just in terms of what you're able to, the subject matter you're able to, to go after. So I think, I'm, you know, there is a point, I'm sure, where she's going to want to really circle back and try and exercise those muscles as well. But, but she's, got a, she's got a beat on it. She's got an ability to sort of tap into that mix. And the, I don't know anyone else who of, does. The pilot of um, Grey's Anatomy, when you got that, what was your reaction to that? I, mean, I loved it. You know, it, it was, first of all, it was just, it was written so craftily. You know, there's a lot of craft and emotion in it. Those two things together, the concept, the basic concept was so strong of these interns, this group of, this little cluster of people who are all having to band together because they're getting mutually abused by the, by the process they've entered, is a wonderfully relatable emotional container to put a show in and then to have it executed like she was able to do where you really got to feel these people as full-bodied people uh, I was thrilled you just you just you weren't finding scripts like that um, very often back then or now frankly. so when you read it you thought this is this is going to be special oh. well I thought it was, I definitely thought it was special I knew it was special I knew if we didn't blow it we had a shot at something but the truth is, is, you know, the whole time we were making the pilot, the whole time we were doing the first season, because um, we didn't air, we didn't air until the day after our first season ended shooting. So we spent a whole season in a vacuum. So you shot, why was, that just, was this the way the schedule ran? It was, you know, uh, the head of ABC at the time wanted to, didn't want to launch that show until April. He was kind of throwing it away. He didn't think, he didn't have much faith. Wow. And that whole first year, we were getting just bludgeoned by them. They were convinced we were blowing it. That you kept getting um, notes every oh week. Oh my God, every day. notes! We were—they were on top of us. Do you the have those time. notes? <laughs> They're all right here, <laughs> seared into my brain. You know, we had executives on the set questioning the color of the poster on the wall of our hospital set. I mean, they were—they were. They were they shut us down for two weeks because they were convinced we were blowing it. I mean, it was a really rigorous gauntlet we went through. But you were able to, at the same time, as the were you able to sort of gel an ensemble in a different way because you weren't on the air and you didn't have that external coming in or it did not make it, or just It's out? funny because, because in a strange way, now that I'm talking about it, I hadn't thought of this before, we, we kind of went through what they were going through as interns on the show. We were getting abused by our superiors while we were trying to make the, you know, this, this really cool show. And, you know, in the long run, obviously the show did really well and they, they had faith in us and kind of let us do what once we wanted it to started, do. But. Once it aired, it was immediately apparent that the audience was yeah. taking to it. It was a lot like 30-something. It was, it was, you know, you come out and you wait for that number. That first number is good. And you're going, ooh, okay, what's that? But next week's the one that counts. You know, will people come back? And so you wait a whole week, kind of pins and needles, and suddenly that number comes in, and it's good. And suddenly people are starting to talk about it, and by week three or four, you're going, oh, my God, we're, we're into something here. And then it just builds for a year, a solid year. And that's, that's the most fun. 
the discovery of your success, you know, week by week, and seeing it blossom is. And is you were getting awesome. a lot of communication from fans and the world, the media and the world at large. People were a lot of attention was focused on the show once it, it was out there. It started to, yeah. And then the exec, the executives who had worked so hard to make it a success. <laughs> the relationships were all intact. We we went from being you know kind of pariahs to geniuses over, over a very short period of time. And, and how was Shonda, I mean Shonda, that was her first show, right? Yeah. And she'd been in features or something? She'd like done that. a couple of features. And so um, what was her, you know, how was it for her, I mean, as you, as you observed it, what was? She was, you know, it was a real journey for her because, you know, I think she's got such capacity to her, both, both creatively and personally. Uh, that she just absorbed all these blows for the whole year and you know listen all of us have our doubts you know in our hearts of hearts we're kind of maybe I am blowing it maybe this maybe I have no idea what I'm doing <laughs> and to have you know I remember she and I at one point sitting together after it started to really take off and going you know both kind of saying to each other wow this is really reassuring to know that we're not idiots. <laughs> <laughs> so you got to kind of, there was a validation. Which Big validation. You have to feel when that yeah. happens. And how do, you, how do you deal with the, the doubt and the, 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 neg the negative voice mm. that is being nurtured by yeah. the factors that you have no control over when you're trying to work, especially when you're trying to direct. I mean, as a writer, yeah. it's one thing, and, but as a director, how do you deal with that? It was really hard, I gotta say. I remember, you know, the first day of dailies on the pilot, I had decided to, to do this scene handheld, but not but not, you know, not uh, the shield handheld. You know, it was much more very steady handheld. It was not a bold move. And the head of the network called up the producers after that first day of dailies saying, He's blowing it. You know, he does I can't sell this show. He was the head of the studio at the time. He became the head of the network during that transition. Uh, when, who and, was the actor? No, no, it was just the, the cast. I was, oh, right. I was just directing this scene. This is the first scene where they all start meeting each other in, the, in, the, in a locker room in the mm -hmm. hospital, the first day on the, on the, on the job. And, and I just shot it, you know, steady handheld and, and kind of played this, I thought it was a really cool scene. And he just freaked out. And, and that kind of, he had someone sit on the set, <laughs> I remember them, saying what we want here is sex in the surgery that's what we want sex in the surgery that's the tone we want make it light make it fun make it happy you know just, needs to, just keep thinking that and she had someone they had someone sitting on the set constantly saying to me sex in the surgery and i was like this is going to truly drive me insane if i don't find a way to cope with this so i i basically what you do I think in those situations, as a creative person, is all of those doubts, all those, you basically just lean forward on the rails and you just go, I have got to get through this the best I can and do the best I can and let that be what it is. And you just put your head down. So you get in the zone, you're in the zone, you just and stay, you stay in there. In the zone you sit, you, you reflect that's those yeah. voices or whatever it is but that's that's a, that's a pretty concrete voice coming at you that way you develop this ability i remember sarah jessica parker sarah jessica parker saying at one point that she developed this ability to you know when because you know she'd get directors who were good and directors that weren't so good on that show and she developed this ability to turn them off when they're talking and and present an agreeable response <laughs> and then keep going and you kind of do that within that situation as these people are saying these things you just you develop the skill of just turning it off but nodding your head and say oh i get it okay i'll definitely i'll keep that in mind and then just going forward because what you learn is first of all if there is anything valid that they have to say it'll get in and it'll it'll land in your system most of what they're saying is out of fear in those uh -huh. situations, they're afraid of their boss. Their boss is afraid of his position. They're afraid of what you know, It's all based on a certain amount of panic. So, consequently, most of it's not helpful. So you've got to put that really thick filter up yeah. to be able to let the good stuff through, but really keep out the bad stuff. And so you, the good stuff, you'll just grab onto it, and so you'll listen carefully, but you'll consciously, or you know, maybe as a matter of reflex, just 
No. Don't, you don't want to listen too carefully, because <laughs> then it'll get through the filter. I mean, I honestly feel myself at, in those times, and it doesn't happen to me as much anymore, but back then I was still establishing myself, and I would just kind of literally almost tune it out, because like I said, the good, the good stuff in there, okay, I get they want to have a tone that might be lighter than I would take it mm-hmm. by my nature, and, and it's like, okay, that's fair. Mm-hmm. But I still have to interpret it. I still have to be the one who decides yeah. where the camera's going, what, they, what the cast is going to do in these scenes, how they're going to blo- be blocked, yeah. or I have to write that scene. I still have to make that scene my own. Or as an actor, I have to make it mine. I, have to, you know, I had this great acting coach right, right before I quit acting <laughs> uh, named Harold Guskin, who, who would say to me, you know, and it taught me a lot as a director, which is if a director tells you to do something, you have to do the opposite. Because you can't, otherwise you're just doing what they're asking you to do. Which is why you can't as a director ever go up and say, hey, you know, um, can you smile on this line? Or can you, can, you, can you laugh? You can never ask for an effect. Because you're just sabotaging your actor. You have to be able to say, you know, it feels like the stakes aren't as high as, it, as they need to be here. Can you find a way to make the stakes higher? Because then you're giving it back to them. And they have, then they can make it their own. And, and give you what you need. So, um, so you have to, you, as a director, you'll create a picture of what might cause the result that you want visually, true. or you expect them, there's kind of response that you want to see from them on screen or on camera? Yeah, I go through, you know, my other, one of my other great teachers was Nina Fosh, who was not only a good acting coach, she was a great directing coach. She, and she taught me this skill of going through a script, especially if it's not a script I've written, and taking each line and putting an intention next to it. So you've got it in your brain. So that if an actor gets stuck, I mean, I had it on, on The Cure, which is the only feature I ever directed. Anna Shiora was, was the lead, or one of the leads in the, in the piece. And she, in, in, in the piece, her son has just died. And she's in this scene with Brad Renfro. Uh, where, where she's crying and she's breaking down. And at one point she called me and she just, to the car and she just said, I, I'm dry, I don't have anything left. And because I had done that work, I was able to say to her, okay, in this take, call him back. Call your son back. And boom, you know. And you had that, those notes on your Written script. Down. Yeah. So you, you, have, you have a script with you on the set and it has notes on every line basically or some? Basically, yeah. I, I'll, every line, I'll, I'll sort of go with what, what am I looking for out of this line you know, as a director. And ironically, what I, you then do, you take the script to the set and you put it in your directing chair and you don't open it again you know, because now you're into a different world, into a flow. But if you need to, get stuck like that, like she was. I had that sitting there. And it's a way of kind of shooting the whole thing in your head yeah. beforehand. It's like you're directing. And you're I, 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 you know, not all directors do it this way at all, but, but I have it, my process as a director is to take a script and I break it down before or as I'm even lo- location scouting. So I find myself envisioning it and then going to try and find a location that fits the vision. Much more than the other way around. Often it'll reverse, you know. You'll find a location that suggests ideas. You've got to be open to that. But, but I need to have it in my head before I go. So you'll imagine it out. You'll, yeah. visual, you'll imagine it out visually and emotionally yeah. for what the characters are going to, yeah. how it's going to appear, what they're going to be doing on screen for, as you, before you've cast it or yep. as you've cast it? Or both. But before I start shooting, I've got that whole thing in my head the way I want to do it. Every shot, everything. And then I throw it out. Do you remember it, or do you do you write it? Have to write it down. I write it down. And then so then you have that. And what does it look like on the page? I mean, it's just like notes. Scribble. (laughs) In terms of shot breaking down shots as well, how are you exactly? How are you going to shoot? Yeah. Something. List it. I list all the shots down. And and you know, Stuart Dreiber, um, who's fantastic DP shot the pilot to American Odyssey and he asked for my notes because he wanted to know what the shot list was and I handed it to him and he was like, <laughs> I can't read this. <laughs> but, you know, a good DP will do the same thing. They'll come to you and say, what's in your head? What are you, what are you looking for? Give me shot by shot. So, and again, that doesn't mean by any means, and this is the key to it, 
is when you get on that set, you got to throw it all out. You have to just toss it and know it's in there. And so when things happen, you can adjust to it. You know, if, if you try and force everything into your pre, can, you know, your pre-planning, you'll, you'll get in trouble. But if you have that, it, it, to me, it's, it, it allows it, the process or that process allows me to embody the piece, to really get it in my cells so that I can go out and be free on the, on the floor. And do you find that you will just remember the things that you, know, yeah. you sort of reiterate what you would note it down because it's vivid yeah. and then other things? Once I write it down, it's, it gets stuck in there. Um, I, never, I, don't, I hardly look at the script again once I start shooting. In terms of different acting styles of actors or how, what actors respond to, I mean, what's the, like, are you dealing with some actors who are not looking or just kind of doing it instinctively and other actors who are really looking for an um, external you know, metaphor for whatever mm -hmm. it is or you know, internal metaphor, something that they can recognize about what's going on. What do you find? Well, I find the best actors have, and I mean this in the best sense of the word, have a real ego about what they're doing, that they have a real take on it too. They come in there having really done their homework really embodied this character so that they know him better than I do. I prefer that to either the actor who comes in and says, what do I do, you know? Or the actor that comes in and is, it's a rigid ego, which is like, well, I have to do it this way, mm -hmm. or I can't do this part. Both of those belie an insecurity and, and kind of a, 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 a untethered approach to their work, mm -hmm. whereas you know, the best actors will come in, they'll know their character, they'll have very strong ideas of how they would, they would approach them, and that's the dance you get to do with them. You know, mm -hmm. I, the first thing is give them as much of that as you can, mm -hmm. because you want that, that kind of deep work to be in your, in your movie. Mm -hmm. So how can I adjust what I'm thinking around what that is, you know? But if it's either of the other two, if it's an actor who comes in unprepared or an actor who comes in rigid, mm -hmm. then it's a different dance. You and know? you can know from their reputation whether they're always going to be that way, or do you find an actor just like this? This project, this 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 job, this mm -hmm. script, you know, they sort of panic and come in with nothing, or you can smell it the minute they walk in the and set. And it could be anybody who has it could that. Be anybody. It's like an you know. You can smell it. You can tell. You can just tell by the, the tone. And, you know, and some of the best known actors can come in rigid. They don't usually come in like lost because their egos have evolved to play. They don't yeah. allow that impression. But they can come in rigid. And, and that belies an insecurity again. Whereas the best actors I've worked with, you know, whether it's Donald Sutherland or John Voight, you know, or Katie Heigl, or you know um, Blair Underwood. They're just they come from that place of just depth. Mm -hmm. of, that's their work ethic. They yeah. go deep. They go deep with their with their work, and you can feel it. And then it's just fun. Yeah. It's like it's like being a conductor in an orchestra with a violinist really knows their shit. And then yeah. seeing how they, so they are, if, if they're rigid, then they're not going to be responsive to whoever they're playing a scene with to some degree. I would That's imagine. true, too. So they, need, they can't really adjust. Or you, find, you find those actors a lot of times trying to direct the other actors as well in the scenes. Why would they the they're doing <laughs> yeah. it or else it's not going to work? Which is, again, to me, that's, that's not security. That's not being grounded in the way that, you know, the work we do, in my opinion, and I, and I give this speech to every crew and cast before I start something is this is sacred work. We've been given the chance to do sacred work. And the journey of this work is can you really get to an ineffable truth about human experience that can live in this piece? And that's going to take dedication from everybody, from the person, the caterer to the lead actor. If you, can, if you can inspire that kind of vision in it, it's going to permeate it. You're going to feel it in the piece. And you give that talk at the, on the first day of shooting? Yeah. Or right, like before you start 
the first shot or the day before? How does that? I gather everybody before the first shot, and we just kind of say a little prayer. All right, that's I love that. That's great. That's great. And Shonda Rhimes, do you, was she like formed? I just sorry to go back to this. I sure. just forget. I gotta ask, ask you about some other things about your own work, but was she formed by that by doing that show to just move on and just do these other? I mean, what was? What, how did you sense the journey that she would go on and just become this sort of franchise of shows on, on television? You know, I, like I say, I think I think Shonda has real capacity as a human being, and I think you know she she had to go through. You know, Grey's Anatomy for those first, and again, I was only there for the first three years, and then I branched off into some of my own stuff. But you know, it was, it was a it was a real journey for her of learning, you know, how, who do I want to surround myself with <laughs> who can really support me? How do I want to have, what, what do those relationships want to be, need to be for me? How do I want to relate to the cast? How do I want to, how do I want to be this showrunner? Who's that for me, given my nature? And I think it took a number of years for her to really kind of settle with that. But once she did, you know, she just wanted to go to bat again. She had ideas. Yeah. Ideas would float into her brain, and she would then just execute. I think she probably came in with a billion ideas. Yeah. <laughs> She's always, she always, again, I, I would watch her. You know, we'd get stuck at a certain point and something, and she'd go into her room, put her headphones on, and next thing you know, she'd come out with these ideas, and you'd go, oh, okay. And, and that, that idea of um, a pilot, in, in speaking of uh, the Odyssey pilot, you're speaking about having a, a, a script that suggested stories. Mm -hmm. So as a director, when you pick up a pilot, you know, I mean, you you want it to, be, you want there to be these things in place which you know that they can be mined yeah. throughout. Yeah. And what is that? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's become much harder to, to define recently because there are so many great shows out there that don't necessarily immediately suggest story. You know, Fargo, um, yeah, that's a movie. And so how does that turn into a series, you know? And, and I, think, I think with the advent of, of serialized shows, shows that just are these long, long stories, where you're just taking a story and you're just expanding it, it's a little harder to identify that as something that obviously has got legs. You can almost make anything have legs if you're a good enough writer these days, yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, you, know, <laughs> you look at Game of Thrones, which is like, you know, it's one of the best television shows ever made, but it's so complicated. <laughs> you know, it's, in fact, the people, it took me a long time to get into it for that reason. There's, there's so many kingdoms and so many players and they're in this fantasy where you're world building and you're, you know, and it's like, it took three episodes for me to even understand who was who and what was going on. But suddenly you get into this world and it just transports you because the writing's so good. You know, not only um, is, were, the, were the books really great, but what David Benioff and D.B. Wise are able to do with that book, or those books, is so crafty and so well done, it just wraps you up on it. I mean, it's, it's, it's an assaultive experience because you just never know what they're going to throw at you next. So I, I think you could, you could probably make the argument these days that, that, you know, that most ideas can have legs. You know, most of them can. It's hard to really find an idea or a subject matter that you, you think can't really go. And then it's really a matter of how good are the writers or is, or, or, is the basic sort of vision for it. Because every great show, other than procedurals, every single great show that's ever been made, in my opinion, has had a single vision to it. Even if it's a partnership, it's had a single, single vision. Which is why we know when networks sort of take the creator and just toss them willy-nilly and try and replace them, 90% of the time it doesn't work. But if you have someone with a real vision on a subject matter, generally you can make it work. And that's about character, creating characters that are really resonant and building out the world and just... It's all that stuff. Yeah, it's creating character, it's creating plot that, that 
fits the, the world you've created. You know, it's creating a world that's interesting enough. It's all of the things that, you know, that us writers do. And so what are you working on now? Circle back to that. <laughs> There's a project, my, that my primary focus right now is a project that I have for Cinemax that, that I love. Uh, it's, it's untitled. <laughs> But it's, uh, it's, I'm, I'm writing it with Rail Tucker, who is, is a great writer. Um, she was the showrunner on, on True Blood for years. And it's, it's a cautionary tale. It takes place in the indeterminate future, where basically we're positing that technology didn't save us. So it's taking everything that we have now and, and extending it into the future, whether it's climate change, resources, overpopulation, water, all of those things and creating a world of extreme income gap where basically the one percenters live in the ultimate gated communities around the world whether it's Los Angeles with an actual wall around it or San Francisco with a wall and a moat and everyone else the vast majority live in the like favelas of Brazil and so it's the it's a, this big soap opera in the best sense of that word, it takes place between these two worlds. Wow, um, it sounds great. Yeah, it's cool. And I'm so excited about it. How so did you? We'll see. Is that conceptually? That's where you started with this idea of these are the conditions of this indeterminate time in the future, and these are the yeah. these are the politics. And then how did you? How are you moving into telling the stories? I mean, what's your? You know, it's really. Again, it starts from what's what's really hitting me today. You know, what's, when I wake up and I read, I'm a voracious news reader. You know, I read the New York Times every day and the Christian Science Monitor and, and you know, what's moving me? What's hitting me? And at the time, you know, again, not unlike American Odyssey, it was about, you know, I'm an environmentalist. Uh, my fear of where, you know, where does this all extend? What, what happens in the future? Where do, you know, given our lack of ability, seeming lack of ability to truly respond to the situations at hand, what would happen if we didn't? And sort of going, okay, let's just go into the future and see what that looks like. And then you start imagining that, where if technology doesn't save us, which yeah. it well may not, what does that look like? You know, where do we go? And to be able to then deal with those issues that are hitting me in present day, in, in fiction is what really gets me excited. So who's the protagonist? <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a number of people, but the primary protagonist is, you know, you have a literal border now around this, and this one takes place in San Francisco, where, you know, you, they, you cannot get in. It's a little bit like apartheid, where they have day workers who have passes that can come in and do the work that the insiders don't want it to do, like house cleaning, plumbers, you know, gardeners, those kind of things. And there are border guards, and our primary protagonist is a believer, is a border guard, and is in, in charge of, taking, of making sure those people stay out. And he's the one who ends up going through the most, the biggest transition of anybody. But there's, you know, there's, there's the guy on the outside who's, who's kind of a militia leader, you know, because it's like, like in the favelas of Brazil, there are areas run by drug cartels and there's a leader. This guy, Vic, is, is a ruthless, ruthless leader who just recently found Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> He's trying to reform himself before he dies, you know, and so it's filled with characters like that that are, you know, really odd and interesting. Yeah, so there's that story. That sounds great. This sounds like yeah. a great show. So, and where are oh. you? You're writing the pilot now or you have a pilot and you're... We're doing uh, the rewrite. We, we turned in a draft. They gave us some actually really good notes, really smart notes. And so we're writing those, rewriting it, and then we'll turn it in. Hopefully it'll get going. We'll see. And just a pilot, no right. other episode, no Bible for the season or anything Not yet. like that? Uh, yeah. you, you assume that they'll ask you, they may ask you for more episodes, you know, you don't know what they're going to ask for. I don't know. And doing it for Cinemax, what is there, creatively, what kind of, what do you adjust to being at a specific channel? That, that well, way? you know, in uh, this day and age, the most important thing for networks, I think, is branding. 
You know, what's our brand? What's, uh, what, what do we offer that's different than other people? Is it higher quality? Is it edgy? Is it women? Is it, you know, is, is it Blue Skies Entertainment? I mean, they all are trying to define themselves and, you know, find a distinction in the landscape that'll attract a certain tribe that'll be loyal. Mm-hmm. And if they can get a tribe of two million people, they're in good shape. That fits their metric. But the great news about it is, is they all need stuff to really be good because the bar is so high out there now. And so you go to like a place like Cinemax and their brand is, is violent and sexy. You know, they like that. But they're really smart people, you know. They're they're and they they're also wanting to be violent, sexy, and really good. <laughs> so you you know you take off the 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 um, inhibitors around things like violence and sex, and you know how weird can you go, and how interesting can you go, and outside the box you let yourself really flow in those areas, and you know, hopefully give them enough of their brand that they'll go for it. Um, so they're going to definitely keep one eye on, it has to be the flavor, it has to hit the, those tonal yeah. things that we always hit. Yeah. But they're also like hoping for the holy grail and That's hoping right. for greatness. And they're, you know, they see everything as an up. In, in beginning, in the beginning when you pitch it, they said this could be great, I'm sure. Yeah, and that's you know that's why they buy it. Yeah, <laughs> that's why they always buy it. Yeah, but this could be great. I, I love this. And it sounds like a great. It show. could be amazing. I mean, if 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 you know they give us the chance to to put it on his feet and and if we do it right, it should be pretty amazing because you know. Are you aware, like, when you go to a place like, that, like how many shows they're developing and like who the company? You know, it's not, it's not like the network yeah. thing where you know that you're sort of in this scheduled horse race, which takes place in, in a very seasonal right. way. When you're going to a, a cable channel, they're not really they don't they don't have a date when they need the show. They really don't. They don't they're, they're in no hurry. <laughs> and and you're competing against everybody now you know I'm competing against Martin Scorsese you know it's it's not it's no longer this great divide between those guys and us or those guys and girls and us it's everybody's in tele- everybody. everybody's moving to the television yeah everybody's doing it so you know trying to get a show on on Netflix or HBO or one of those shows you know where they they love having David Fincher or, or they like the marquee value of this stuff it gets a little harder but they also basically need content. There's yeah. a real need for content out there. Everybody's looking for it. All right. Well, that's 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 the best news. Yeah. Uh, for for creators, Peter, thank you so much for sitting down with me. This is fantastic. I um, really enjoyed this. My pleasure. I learned a lot. My pleasure. It's good to finally meet you. And that's it for now. If you would like a PDF transcript of today's show or want to check out our schedule, you can get it all and more at theprocess.ink. And of course, we're on iTunes and all those other good places. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Benedict.